if you're if you're new to the, to a church or to this whole Christmas story, that's kind of it, right there. Um, kind of it. Uh, I know sometimes people go, "Oh, that's not reverent or something," but the reality is, I just I love little kids and their perspective on Christmas. And really, when you think about it, um, Christmas is that kind of childlike event because it's all about a baby. It's all about a baby. But what we don't also realize is that Mary was probably somewhere between 14 and 15 years of age. She was a kid. And God chose her. What an incredible, incredible story for us to be able to share year after year, again and again, of this great, great event of God entering into history into a little baby. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for Christmas beginning, for your heart in it kind of coming in and in, in doing kind of a redo, a new start for your people who you created. I ask, Holy Spirit, that in these few moments and these words that you have um, placed in my heart, that you would be fully active in these words. They would be more than words. They would be like the Word of God creating and forming faith and understanding and revelation into the hearts of people here. And in some situations, maybe some new starts. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. So I want to get you used to... um, some, a few words this morning. And, you know, it's been a kid thing this morning, so I'm going to ask you to kind of get out of yourself a little bit and kind of enter in and, and make this a little more interactive, at least at points in the service. So I'm going to ask you to repeat um, quite often at times throughout the message some words, especially as we get into the second part of that message. Um, but let's practice a little, and I'd like you to repeat this line with me, because that's just what love does, Okay. Because that's just what love does. That's, that's pretty good. Put your heart a little bit more into it. Ready? Because that's just what love does. Okay, you need to stand. We need to make this a full body thing. Come on. Or maybe you need to move closer together. Okay, we're going to say it one more time. Because that's just what love does. Every Christmas, with great joy, you go shopping for just the right present for those you love. Now, here's the key word. Say them with me. Because... That's just what love does. As a customer, patron, or patient, when I receive service and help from another, I say thank you with a smile because that's just what love does. When I see an elderly person struggling to open a door, I quickly reach out to help open it because that's just what love does. And they're getting a little tired. You keep with me here. When someone cuts me off and grabs the parking spot I was waiting for, I raise my fist in the air. And open my hand gladly, waving them into the spot. (laughs) Knowing their life must be crazy, hectic, and filled with stress. Because that's just what love does. When my friend or loved ones let me down, I forgive them because... You got to say it again. Okay, when my friend or loved one lets me down, I forgive them because... That's just what love does. I happen to notice someone who is on the fringe of the circle or sitting close or by themselves in a pew. And I connect and I engage with them, hopefully even making a new friend because that's just what love does. When I get paid from work, the first thing I do is take that 10% and run to the church right off the top because that's just what love does. Thanks. You may be seated. 
We're going to look at these words this morning with God in this first verse and also look at the 14th verse. There's two basic points to the message today. So those of you who like to kind of go, where are we going? It's going to be simple. It's, we're going to just paint some pictures, a picture of the life of God and then the picture of the love of God. And it's found in John 1, with God, that's the life of God. And then we'll look at John 1, 14, because it's a very interesting thing. He says the word was with the word, word, word. And then he doesn't say much about it till verse 14. And then he comes back to the word became flesh. And first we're going to look at the picture of the life of God, the community of the Trinity, and this incredible relationship that Jesus and the Father, the Son, Father, and Holy Spirit have together. This incredible idea that the word was with God. And then we're going to look at this picture of the love of God, the incredible love that propelled and compelled Jesus, the Word, to walk with you and me. So staying focused, as I said last week, will be a major challenge. Because, in, you know, I was kind of ADD. If I was one of those kids in that little choir up here, I was one of those kids who was going around like this. I mean, I just, it, it amazes me. And in fact, like in, in bed at night, my wife will sometimes say, just stop moving. Because she'll... I don't know how she does it, but she'll just go like this, and this all of a sudden not move at all, and I'm just all over the place. Anyway. Oh, okay, stay focused. Okay, I, that's right. Um, remember, John does not approach the birth narratives as an earthly historical perspective in that way. He actually begins with these first 18 verses. They're called a prologue or an introduction to the rest of his 21 chapters, and he does it from a heavenly theological perspective. He's looking from the eyes of God to man. I was actually considering for quite some time to go through this verse by verse as I was studying all this, and, and I, I finally made a decision because of how much it was and the amount of time that we had that I would merely um, take some of the verses and, and some of the theological streams of thought in it and kind of maybe show you how they process through this rich narrative, this rich prologue. It's an amazing introduction, these first 18 verses. And I'm going to encourage you to read it on your own sometime and just to, to, to allow yourself to think about it, meditate on it. Right? Every word is precisely chosen. John worked really hard on these 18 verses. Every word is precisely chosen with rich theological content. In fact, some of them have some philosophical content that would, would be used in the sense outside of just those Jews and others who are reading this. The actual word, the word logos... Was a, was a word rich in Hebrew tradition around the idea of the, the spoken word of God which creates and has power and life when declared makes a change. So that even when the Holy Spirit speaks through me and you hear God through it in the word, the Holy Spirit speaking to you, it actually can form faith and it can actually cause things to happen in revelation understanding in your mind. But there's also in the philosophical traditions, in the, in the Greek cultures, and the cultures around it, this idea of the word, this idea of reason, and the main principle, which was distant but never came to earth. And so we're not going to get in, so stay focused here. This is so full, so rich, each and every word. As I said last week, a child can wade in its waters and a huge vessel can plunge in its depths. We talked last week about in God. That in the heart of God has been the design and desire to save. And he, and he shows that right in the beginning. He says, in the beginning, which any person who was from Jewish background or even in that culture in that day, because creation stories were important and they knew them, would understand that in the beginning was referring to the fact that when God spoke in the beginning, he created stuff. Heaven and earth, animals and plants. And this God who created stuff 
saw that that which he loved the most, which wasn't stuff but made in his very image, was now marred and had been moving away from him in selfishness and was apart from him. And he wanted this person, us, his people, to know him. So in God, in the heart of God, this first creative act, there is now, says John, a second creative act. In the beginning, the word is spoken again, and the word creating salvation for those who believe. I said last week, fresh starts are possible. The reality is, according to John, fresh starts are essential. Without that, you continue to walk apart from God. You must be born from above. And so as you read this this book, and I'll just do one other little thing. It's so cool. John 1, verse 1 and 2. Those first few verses are, are it's, it reminds me, you, you know those kind of Russian nest dolls, those barbuska dolls, you know, that, that they, you open it and then there's a smaller one, there's a smaller one. Well, just think the opposite way. When you look of John 1, 1 and 2, it's like this little part inside the bottle. It's like almost splitting a, an atom. It is, it is so full and expansive that when you read the book of John, what you get this idea is he starts in that first verse, which contains so much, which moves into those first 18 verses, which contains so much, which moves into the 21 chapters, which contains so much that he ends up by saying in verse 25, the very last sentence, you get this expansiveness. Listen to what he says. Jesus did many other things as well. And you got to catch this. If every one of them were written down, and we're just talking about the life of Jesus here, I suppose that even the whole world would not have room for the books that would be written. This Jesus who comes to you who wants to live in relationship with you to form who you are and all the relationships and everything around you is no little being. His grace and his truth is so expansive. Okay, that's getting a little bit off course, but I had it. Just That was a cool little thing that is in John. Anyway, a picture of the life of God. John 1, 1 through 3. In the beginning was the Word. Now, here's what we're going to kind of concentrate on today. And the Word was with God. And that little phrase is the picture of the life of God. And the Word was God. We're going to look at that next week. And he was with God in the beginning. Through him, catch this, through him all things were made, and without him nothing was made that has been made. I have the opportunity, and I've had the opportunity in my life to share it with some fairly significant people, and I don't like to talk about it because I just not, I don't want to name drop, but today I'm going to. I remember a number of years ago, I had an opportunity to spend some time with Wayne Gretzky. And I, I know, you know, the Hall of Famer, that was, that was quite, an, a, quite a moment. And then I enjoyed some time um, with the Minnesota hockey legend, Lou Nanny. And that was uh, a neat little conversation. Another uh, highlight I had with my wife, Grace, is a time I'll never forget, and that was the time we were with Tim Tebow. I know you're probably impressed, but that's still not anything when you consider the fact that I've had the opportunity to be with some very influential, important leaders, um, George W. Bush, Hillary Clinton, and, and also Barack Obama. Though probably my fondest memory was when I was with Billy Graham a few years ago. On each occasion, I was with him. We either had a brief conversation, like with Wayne Gretzky when I was walking through the Minneapolis airport. He was sitting at a table with a bunch of his hockey buddies, and I just said, could you sign my ticket? And I said about a sentence more to him and went on my way. 
Lunani, I had the opportunity to fly from Minneapolis to Florida, and we sat down and I asked him a few questions. I had gotten upgraded to first class sitting next to him, and, and, and the rule in first class is, do not talk. So I said a few things, and I could tell, yeah. And Lou was nice, he was really responsive, but I thought, okay, I'll get to my own stuff. When I was um, in Washington, D.C., one time I had the opportunity to meet Tim Tebow, and we talked for about three, four minutes. And uh, I tried to recruit him for the Vikings at that time, by the way. Um, didn't work. And then I also spoke with Hillary in and, 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 and just a few-minute conversation. And then I, I actually sat in the same room, and here's the operative word, with George W. Bush and Barack Obama at a Washington, D.C. National Prayer Breakfast. And then that most memorable occasion went for 30 seconds. I got my picture taken, shaking hands, and again, note the word, with Billy Graham. See the picture there. You'll notice he's kind of looking up at me with admiration. And uh, <laughs> it, was a, it was a great moment for him. And I said, that's enough, uh, um, man. I even moved him on to the next person I was shaking hands with. Anyway, the word with is really important here. And I bring this up because if you don't understand the Greek, you won't really get this. The word with is the word pros. It's not one that's usually used. And unless you think that John is merely saying that the word was with God the Father, kind of like in the same room, sharing a few moments with him in a conversation briefly, but, you know, passing. Or if it's some kind of quick shake of the hands. John wants to make it really clear to us that's not what he means when he uses the word with God. It wasn't one of my name-dropping kind of opportunities. John uses the preposition pros, which is a rare use of this word in the Greek language, which is translated here with. When the classical Greek was moving to Koine, they were beginning to use this word in this rare way with a specific kind of meaning. It's usually used in a sentence to mean to or towards. It's the idea of that you're moving towards someone. In fact, Don Carson writes in one of his commentaries... In Matthew, he says, many writers say John is trying to express a peculiar intimacy between the Word and God. The Word is oriented toward God, like lovers perpetually running toward each other in a beach scene from a sentimental movie. And he goes, no, not really quite like that. But he goes on to say, even though that may claim too much, the word pros is rare, and it's used in just a few places in the New Testament. I could name maybe about seven or so. Mark 6, 3, aren't his sisters with us? Mark 14, 49, every day I was with you. 2 Corinthians 5, 8, we prefer to be away from the body and at home with the Lord. 1 John 1, 2, John uses this word again, the eternal life which was with the Father. The idea is it's to or toward. It's this idea that he's moving in. The relationship is always moving in. It's always this community, this incredible community of love and joy and peace and, and engagement with never any sin, anything staining it, no selfishness. It's just this incredible community where their faces are toward one another, not in relationship where their backs are toward each other. Carson goes on at one point and he says, what we notice about all these examples that I had just read to you, these scriptures, is that pros may mean with, only when with a person, usually in some fairly intimate relationship. And that suggests that John may already be pointing out rather subtly in this very first verse that the word he is talking about is a person and therefore distinguishable from God the Father and enjoying a personal relationship with him. Plainly, 
In that little word, John reveals the Trinity, the Father, Son, and this Holy Spirit, and points out in a subtle manner the incredible life that the Trinity had together in community with one another. It's this idea that, that, that in Jesus, there is this relationship with God where you can be moving toward, that you're in this face-to-face relationship. It's what God wants for us in our relationships with one another. It's what God desires for this church. Not for people to be standing back to back like this. He's saying, guess what? In God, there is this picture of life with God, which with all our differences and all our uniqueness and ways of understanding that we can actually look face to face and be moving towards one another, moving in relationship with each other. This is the life of God. If you want to paint the picture of God, it's this picture of these three persons who are in love with each other. And they're not merely sharing some space. It's not some superficial arrangement. It's not some mere acquaintance. When you read those words, it's a kind of a picture of what he desires in relationship with couples and relationship in families and relationship with churches and groups of people. This is the three persons in one, an eternal divine substance, delighting and enjoying and loving life together. They were having the time of their lives together, and they were having that time for all eternity. It's, it, it was as good as life could get or you could imagine. That's the picture John gives you of what's happening in heaven. And then he adds, through him all things were made, and without him nothing was made that has been made, and in him was the life, and that life was the light of all mankind. And, and in Proverbs, it's really interesting, Solomon gives a, is given a revelation. And instead of using this word, the word, lagos, he uses the word wisdom, and paints the same picture about this relationship of Jesus and the Father and the Spirit creating together. In fact, if you read Proverbs 8, verses 27 through verse 30, listen to these words. I was there when he established the heavens and formed the great springs and the depths of the ocean. I was there when he set the limits of the seas and gave them his instructions not to spread beyond their boundaries. I was there when he made the blueprint for the earth and the oceans. You get get this idea. You never created something together. You You know when you're creating and... You're brainstorming, you're sharing things, and you're kind of moving together, and there's no hurt feelings, there's no offenses, and everything's a good idea, and you're always, and everything seems to work together. That's what's going on. God is having this incredible time. They're creating stuff together. And he says at one point, I was the craftsman at his side. I was the constant, I was actually his constant delight, rejoicing always in his presence, and how happy I was with what he created, his wide world and all his family of mankind. And you get this picture of life together, which is just a blast. I mean, they're having fun. I mean, they hunted together and fished together and golfed and, work with me here, um, skied. They boated and traveled and vacationed. It was incredible. And I was thinking about this when I was preparing this and trying to understand what would it be like? How do I... How do I help you imagine a life that is just beyond what you could imagine? It's like being in heaven right now. I mean, for maybe it's for you to be in some kind of southern climate where you're sitting on the beach and every day you just do what you want, you get up when you want, and you got all the money in the world, you can eat at the best, you know, 
What's that life for you? Just imagine what that is. And that's not even a billion or even a trillion or even a gazillion times close to what Jesus was experiencing and what this community of life together they were experiencing. The word with God was enjoying this phenomenal life. And you have to ask, if Jesus had all this, think about it, if he had all this, if the word with God enjoyed all this, I mean, think about it. If you're, if you're in this place that you think is the best, that's the best you can imagine, best you can, and it's in a southern climate, why in the world would you move back to embarrass Minnesota? Or Minneapolis, for that matter. Why, if you have all this, think about it, why, if you have all this, what in the world, why in the world are you, what, what is this about that you would actually leave that to come here to be with you and me? And all you can do then is begin to understand that not only is this picture of the life of God, but the picture of the life of God is incomplete unless you understand the picture of the love of God. This is where I want you to practice what we did in the introduction. Because you have to ask yourself, why leave this heavenly home, his throne? Why? Because it is God's nature. His heart is full of love. He is gracious and generous and giving. He is the kind of person who reaches out and identifies and suffers and sacrifices and serves because that's just what love does. When you're weak, you're going to have to follow me here. John 3.16 says it this way, For God so loved the world that he gave his only and one, one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life, because that, that's just what love does. Oh, good, good. God leaves his life of luxury and levity, and he reaches out to those outside this life, a life that he experiences that is filled with goodness and grace, and he invites us to join into that life, because that's just what love does. God removes his cloak of riches and wealth, puts aside his heavenly garment, and puts on the rags of poverty and need, making himself nothing, taking on the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, humbling himself, and identifying with us in all our limitations because that's just what love does. God, who is praised and worshipped by a great company of heavenly hosts, who is provided and cared for by the seraphim and cherubim, who is served day and night by an entire angelic realm. His mighty one, says the psalmist, who do his bidding and implicitly obey his word. This one, the word, Jesus, takes up a towel and carries a cross to save and serve us because that's just what love does. So John begins with this picture of the life of God with God in verse 1, and then he moves down to verse 14 where he shows the picture of love doing just that, reaching out. That's the picture of the love of God. The love of God always reaching out, stretching toward, bending down, stepping outside of a comfort zone, leaving one's clique in order to be with someone outside, leaving one's natural home to touch another life so that they can enjoy the life that you experience. The word who is with God leaves the supernatural realm of abundance and steps into the natural realm of limitations that he, Jesus, might touch us with life. And the life that we use here, the life that was the light of men, it's not the Greek word bios, which is biology, which is the idea of physical life. It's the word called zoe. 
It's the idea of an essence of life. It's the life that God himself has. We often will translate that eternal life, like in John 3.16. But that life is not just quantity of years. We get this idea that somehow if we just kind of raise our hand and say, God, you know, you've reached out to me, I reach out to you, I want your life, and, and someday I'll get that life I can just grin it and make it through this life. And he's saying, that's not what I've come to offer you, just life out there someday. Oh, of course it's that. It's not just quantity, but it's a quality of kind of life. It's the kind of life that allows you to have new stars do-overs, allows you to move into God, and allows you to turn towards Him and continually move towards Him. It allows me and for you, and when we have those problems, when we, we struggle with one another, it still allows us, instead of turning our back, to turn our faces towards one another, to move into relationship with one another. It's that kind of life that reaches out, that faces you. It's the picture of God. The with God, reaching out to you right now with life in your situation. Reaching out to want to touch you right where you're at. I don't know what you might be experiencing, but God does. It's the word wanting you to be with God like he is with God. It's the picture of God straining to touch you with his very life and love and presence. Not just once, but always throughout the rest of eternity. I've had the opportunity a few occasions to visit the Vatican. And um, did I mention that earlier that I was with the Pope? Oh, I didn't. Okay, well, that, that was a nice experience. We were in the courtyard of the Vatican. We were in that courtyard, and he was in this little bubble car. And he was driving by me really pretty close, and he waved to me. So... Um, that was quite an experience too. But anyway, as I went to the Vatican and waited in line, like you know you kind of do, one of the reasons you wait in line is because there's this great highlight. You get to actually walk through the Sistine Chapel and you can't, it's just amazing when you walk through and you see all this art. It's just overwhelming. But there's one incredible work of art by Michelangelo. And it's this, this picture that Michelangelo sees of God reaching out to man. And if you look at this picture, you'll notice the finger of God is extended toward the man. You know, you've seen this before in marketing ads and things, right? And they do doctors, but this is it. You see how he's, he, he's reaching out and he's extending his finger with great vigor. He, God is twisting. Here's God over here on that right side. He's twisting his body to move as, as close as he can as possible to man. And his head is turned toward man. And his gaze is fixed on him. And God's arm is stretched out, his index finger extended forward, and every muscle is taut in his attempt to reach out to man. You know, before Michelangelo um, painted this, art scholars uh, said that the standard painting of creation showed God standing on the ground and, in effect, helping Adam up. That was the standard painting. But not here. Here you have this picture of God rushing toward Adam on a cloud, one of the chariots of heaven, propelled by the angels. And, and you see the angels are actually the chariot that they talk about in the Word of God. My friend John Orberg says, in our day, they don't look like aerobicized. They're just not aerobicized enough to move really fast when you look at that. They look kind of scrawny. But in Michelangelo's day, the angels suggested power and swiftness. Orpah continues, it's as if even in the midst of the splendor of all creation, God's entire being is wrapped up in his impatient desire to close the gap between himself and man. 
It's just he can't wait. The hand actually comes within a hair breadth of man's hand. The painting is traditionally called the creation of Adam, but scholars, many of them have said it should be called the endowment of Adam. It's this idea of God giving life, not just physical life, but life, the substance of his very life. See, Adam's already been given physical life. His eyes are open and he's conscious. And what is happening is that he's being offered life with God. One art critic says it this way, all of man's potential, physical and spiritual, is contained in this one timeless moment. But look at man. Yeah. Not straining. Sitting back. I think Michelangelo understood something about you and me. Yeah, I can do it, maybe. Just a hairbreadth away. You may be a hairbreadth away in your life right now. He's straining, he's been moving through circumstances, he's doing things as he's working around you, and his hand is reaching out, his index finger is doing all straining, but he leaves. This space. One, one person said it this way, it seems apparent that one of the messages that Michelangelo wanted to convey is God's determination to reach out and to be with the person he created. God is as close as he can be without actually touching him. But having come that close, God allows just a little space so that Adam can choose. He waits for Adam to make his move. He may be speaking to you. In certain elements, he may be speaking to you in a a ministry group or in a tuss as a church. He may be speaking to someone that you're working with. It may be that God through you is straining to touch someone. And all it is, just look at that. All it is is just an opening of the heart. It's just a little move. It says, just touch me. And he creates life. A new start. John writes it this way in the verses 10 through 13 of chapter 1. He says, he was in the world the word. Though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. And the world kind of sat back. He came to that which was his own, but his own just kind of kept their finger like this. But he goes on and he says, yet to everyone and to all who did receive him, who in an act of a will opened their heart and understood their need of him and, and just reached out Listen to this. He gave the right to become children of God, to enter into this towardness community. Children born not of a natural descent, nor of your own human decision, nor of a husband's will, not of things of the earth, not of your flesh. You can't do it, but God can, and all you can do is open your heart. It's just like that little hairbreadth away maybe for you. Some of you, he's talking to you, he's saying, can I look at your life right now? And how you're living. Is God calling you in some ways to reach out to strain, to move into, to let go of, to get outside your comfort zone and to stretch and to possibly touch someone else with the life of God in you? Is he calling you to leave your click? You know, you can go through, I begin to understand, I can go through my whole life without eyes to others and saying, God, I can live my life in a very comfortable way. I was at our, uh, one of our... Um, 45 to 60-something party last night for our church, and there's some 400 people in that age group, and about 100 showed up at this thing last night. But I noticed something about myself. It's really easy. 
even though I know a lot of different people, to try and kind of move towards some people that I know better and just am more comfortable with. And it is for me to actually go around and say hello to some people that I don't know as well. It, it's just the way it is. And God might be saying to you right now, you know, this is an opportunity for you to let God in that same way stretch forth his finger through you to touch someone. And that means you've got to reach out. It may mean straining a bit to do that. Jesus and those who follow in the steps of Jesus reach out, stretch forth in prayer, leave home to touch others because that's just what love does. Love identifies. John 1.14 says, The word became flesh and made his dwelling. Again, rich thought here. Tent, his tabernacle, gives the picture of God dwelling among his people in the wilderness. And he just, he pitched his tent for a time and we have seen the glory, the glory of the one and only son who came from the father and catches full of grace and truth. So he sees this glory. Love in verse 14 says not only reaches out but identifies. The message puts it this way. I like it. The word became flesh and moved into the neighborhood. Jesus becomes like us so we can know him. Jesus becomes like us so we can identify with him. He takes on flesh because without that, how would we ever know, see, or understand this God who is spirit. Reading it wasn't enough. Watching and seeing this life in our midst was the gift of God. Hebrews 2, verses 14 and 15, verse 18, in the Living Bible says it this way, since we, God's children, are human beings made of flesh and blood, guess what? He became flesh and blood too by being born in human form. For only as a human being could he die and dying break the power of the devil who had the power of death and only in that way could he deliver those who through the fear of death have been living, listen to this, all their lives as slaves to constant dread. God does not want you to live one more day in constant dread. And I'm not just talking about when you die someday. I'm talking about you think you're going to die or be cut off tomorrow or some relationship he didn't want you to in any way you may be in a really bad space but he's saying to you guess what i've identified with you he goes on he says for since he himself has now been through suffering and temptation he knows what it is like when we when you and i suffer and are tempted and he's wonderfully able to help because he modeled for us the fact that if you go through it there is this sense that god will be there he is always there for you in fact he sees the death and you see the resurrection which is a a a a picture of the fact that no matter what you're going through if you trust and continue to put your faith in him he will meet you in your need I watched yesterday, um, this week, this Tom Brokaw interview with Angelina Jolie, the director of Unbroken. Some of you remember Louis Zamperini and all the things that all he went through. And I remember when I had read that, I said, God, why would you let anyone go through all that pain? Because Angelina Jolie, which I don't know much about, but she so loves that man, so loves the faith of that man. She went, in on, went on in that interview because she herself, who has gone through some suffering recently, has been identifying with the suffering that Louis had. There's something that happens between the heart. And God's identified with you. He's reached out, he's identified, and here's the big part, the picture that you can't let go of. He serves. And what I think is interesting is that he says that we see his glory. Love serves and in doing so reveals God's glory in a way that all the spectacular stuff doesn't. 
Isn't it interesting? You come and you see Jesus and he does the miracles and the miracles are good. I'm not in any way playing those down. Healing and all those things. It reveals the heart of God. It shows God. God, we, we should be expecting more of that as we walk in faith. But the real ending to it all is this incredible sacrifice, this incredible act of suffering, this incredible act of serving you and me. So that when you go through 21 chapters, you get to chapter 13, and by chapter 13, you now start entering into the last week or so of the life of Christ. And it, it, it ends with this, this, this interesting final act. Halfway through John's Gospel, there's a last supper. It's being prepared, and all the guys, they arrive, the feet are dirty, there's no house servants available to wash their feet. I kind of think maybe Jesus got there a little bit early and said to the guy who washed his feet, you know, go home tonight, enjoy Passover with your family. I, I'll take care of this. Really? You mean it? Yeah. Yeah. I'll. So these guys come in and, and the meal's prepared and they're looking at each other and they know they need to wash their feet. And Jesus is preparing for his final act of sacrificial love, which will be shown on the cross where he would take your sin and my my sin and my shame and my guilt so that it wouldn't have to haunt us any longer, that we can now live face toward God. And what I think is so cool about that, it says in John 13 that now Jesus revealed the fullness of the extent of his love. And what was that? Obviously it was a cross, but here's what it is. It says Jesus prepares to reveal his glory not by grabbing the best seat in the house for that dinner, or lining up first at the buffet table, because I think he told all the waiters to go that night too, um, or impressing his followers with one last dazzling miracle, but Jesus grabs a towel, lines up his disciples, and does one last dazzling act of humble service. He washes dirty, smelly feet because that's just what love does. And John writes, we have seen his glory. The glory of God revealed in the life of Jesus throughout those 21 chapters of someone who sacrificially suffers, selfishly gives, and humbly serves. Because love reaches out and identifies and serves. Last Tuesday afternoon, and I'll just close with this, I asked my daughter, Kenzie, um, I called her that afternoon, I said, what are you doing tonight? And, and she said, well, I'm going to a soup kitchen, something called Loaves and Fishes. Anybody familiar with that? And I said, really, with, with someone, one of your friends? And she said, no, I'm just going by myself. I thought, wow, you know, that's impressive, a little convicted. So the next morning, I was driving her to the airport. Didn't have a chance to talk about her experience the night before. So as we're driving to the airport, I asked her a little bit about it. And she said, you know, Dad, I have to tell you this. I do this because it's kind of selfish of me. I get much more out of it than I give. I thought, that's really cool. And then she kind of went on and she said, Dad, it was really cool last night. When I arrived, I was invited by a group of 10 people who were so kind, just good people. And they were all from one church. She said, they were either Catholic or Lutheran. And they had been doing this every Tuesday night for the past 32 years. And uh, they're in their 70s and 80s with my 20-something-year-old daughter. One guy in his 80s remarks to someone else as they're serving the meal, I got to go after here to help my, my, my neighbor out. I help him out every time around this year on this. And his neighbor was 90 years of age. And, and one of his friends in the group said, but, but wait a second, Bob, you're still doing that? You're too old for that. I, I could have just said, you know, but he could have responded, but that's just what love does. My 20-something-year-old daughter was leaving that group 
And they said to her as she was leaving, if you plan to get your PA, as you get your PA, as you've gotten it, and you plan to stay in the area, she's, they said, we didn't, come back and serve with us again. We'd love to serve with you. And I thought about this. Not only were they serving hundreds of people that night, but they had been serving hundreds of thousands of people every Tuesday night for 52 weeks a year for the past 32 years. Because what? That's just what love does. And they touched my daughter's heart. And they touched my heart. And I know they've touched your heart. Jesus sacrificed, selflessly gave, serves, suffers. Because that's just what love does.